The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Malik Barankovas, and today we'll be discussing Parliament or the Courts, who yields a true power in the United Kingdom. I'd just like to make a brief note that this discussion will be very legalistic. However, we'll try to explain all concepts in a simple manner to make you all understand what we will be discussing. Here with me to discuss the topic is Harish. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks, Malik. Also here with us is Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. Uh, Harish, would you like to begin the discussion? Telling us a little bit about your stance in relation to who yields the power in the United Kingdom. Right. So I think um, we have to start by stipulating what the confines of our discussion are going to be. So I think we need to come to a conclusion that we'll be discussing who holds the legal power. Because I think political power is quite clear that parliament holds a lot of sway. But who holds the legal legal power is a far more interesting question. Because the traditional idea of parliamentary sovereignty in the UK. So um, for our viewers, parliamentary sovereignty is this idea that parliament is sovereign and therefore it can make or unmake any law. And the corollary to that is that no other legislative body or lawmaking individual can make an act or legislation that derogates from an act of parliament. I mean, takes, takes away from an act of parliament. So these are the two things that Dicey sets out in his account of parliamentary sovereignty which is the account that most of us start from. And my position is that that's really not true. I don't think Dicey got it right. Not then, not now. But um, we'll leave that for later, for a very interesting discussion moving forward. I just think that when you talk about uh, parliamentary sovereignty, we have to explore a little bit of history. Because after the parliamentarians won at Worcester, the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty gained ground, becoming the UK's uh, rule of recognition. Well, Harris does not believe so, but this is the orthodox account and what many historians uh, believe to be the, the case. And the doctrine can be said to have become further established after the Glorious Revolution and the ensuing uh, Bill of Rights of 1689. And uh, the significance of this brief uh, historical account is that it sets the context in which parliamentary sovereignty became the ultimate constitutional principle. Uh, the necessity to protect parliament from overbearing uh, and tyrannical monarchs. However, uh, in the present day, we don't have uh, an overbearing tyrannical monarch. At least I wouldn't classify uh, Queen Elizabeth as, as uh, <laughs> yeah. s- s- such a monarch. So Agreed. perhaps there's, not, there's no current need for a parliament to have this ultimate sovereignty. And perhaps there are other competing values that should be held in a greater esteem. Uh, how do you guys feel about this? So I think Malik's kind of hit the nail on its head, which is that they're competing ideas, right? So obviously you want a democratically elected legislature. So uh, the voice of the people essentially to be the, 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 the arbiters of their own laws that they're going to be following, right? So that's why that's a good compelling case for why parliamentary sovereignty should be the case. Um, but we also, I think over time we've recognized that pure majoritarian um, ideals won't necessarily lead to the best outcomes for the vulnerable and for minorities. So that's why we have things like the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, which is this um, treaty that the UK has signed up to um, in order to protect human rights. So that's a competing idea. And another competing idea is this idea called the rule of law, which is um, very difficult, I think, to describe in a single sentence. Um, But the general idea is that laws must be prospective. They must be reasonably dispersed to every individual in the public they cannot operate retrospectively, meaning you can't make a law stating that some offence that was not an offence before this is now an offence and you can convict people for something they didn't know was illegal or that wasn't illegal before. So these are some common values that we think about when we think about the rule of law. 
I'd like to ask uh, <coughs> both of your opinions in regard to the idea that currently parliament can be seen as an uh, elected dictatorship. And uh, I bring this up because parliament is in the modern day controlled by the executive. Uh, recently, this has not been the case due to the coalition governments. However, as of now, uh, Boris Johnson does have an impressive majority of uh, roughly 80 uh, members of parliament. So arguably, he has a, a, a great deal of control over parliament itself. So would it be fair to say that parliament should still be sovereign, even though it's not sovereign itself due to the fact that it's being controlled by the executive or at least highly influenced by, uh, by that power? Mm, I think it's a bit difficult for you to say that because in terms of, I mean, we look at how uh, voting the voting works in parliament like for the executive now and the whole idea of like whip party voting and whatnot. So even though he has 80% majority in the in the government now, I think it's it's very difficult for you to say then that in and of itself means that it is an authoritarian sort of uh, leaning because as long as he's not abusing the party whip, I don't believe that it could be seen in that way. Right. Um, I think... Um so the reason why the executive has a lot of power in parliament is simply because of the Westminster system. But I think one of the problems that you alluded to was the fact that the executive is made up of a ruling party, which doesn't necessarily gain a majority of votes. So for example, um, in the recent elections, Boris Johnson's conservative party garnered 43% of the votes, but they have a majority, right? Which means that a majority of people didn't actually vote for the conservatives to win. They voted for other parties. But that's a flaw of the first-past-the-post system, which is that the person with the highest number of votes is the person who's going to be winning. So even if someone wins, so let's say there's four candidates, and the, and the highest vote count goes to someone who has earned 27% of the vote, that person is going to be the person representing that constituency, which obviously doesn't sit well with us. So I think that comes down to a flaw with the electoral system, which is not representative of the votes that each party gets. So that's something to always keep in mind when we think about parliamentary sovereignty and whether it's, an actu it's actually a good thing or not. And Harish and Michael, recently we've heard a lot of judges become more outspoken and uh, tackle uh, the issue of uh, who holds the power, uh, well, the legal power in the United Kingdom, the courts or the parliament, in a very, uh, well, Surprising manner, for example, uh, Lord Hope and uh, Attorney General and Jackson. Would you guys like to comment uh, about Lord Hope's dicta? So Lord Hope seems to point out that um, the rule of law enforced by the courts is the ultimate controlling factor. Um, so this is the idea that in a suitable case, um, the courts will be able to strike down legislation which is so contrary to beliefs held by British society that um, it, it just would, like for example, let's say Parliament comes out with an arbitrary law that says uh, let's kill all Welsh people, right? And um, someone appeals against that decision, obviously because it's, it's, it's so fundamentally, fundamentally contrary to what we think of as, as fair or reasonable, right? The courts are the only arbiters that will be able to enforce that. But obviously, Lord Hope said this in context of dicta of Jackson. So it was not um, a principle on which the court decided. Um, but it, it is something to keep in mind. And maybe it's because of the fact that, like Malik and Michael alluded to earlier, is this idea of the executive being really strong in parliament. So when the executive and the legislature are fused so much, which is contrary to the American system. So the American system is where there's clear delineation of separation of powers and they're interdependent on one another to make sure that laws are passed. 
um, in Westminster, the model, uh, in all Westminster systems, the model is that the executive is born out of um, the legislature. So the executive, by virtue of uh, whip voting, has a lot of power in play. So I think because of that, the courts have evolved a jurisdiction that uh, empowered by the Human Rights Act and by EU law to act as a very effective check against uh, extensive government intervention or unreasonable government intervention. So in Jackson, uh, a very novel uh, vision of parliamentary sovereignty was proposed. And that vision is that parliament is only sovereign because the courts allow parliament to be sovereign, as in uh, the courts recognize uh, parliamentary sovereignty and that is the only reason why it, it stands. Uh, do you guys agree with this vision? Uh, do you guys believe that ultimately uh, parliamentary sovereignty is the rule of recognition in the United Kingdom? Or if it is, it's only because of the courts? Right. Um, just to contextualize the idea, um, the rule of recognition is this um, secondary rule that underlies primary rule. So um, this is the idea from Hart, which is that there are two different types of uh, rules or laws that people abide by. The first is primary rules, which is like your regular laws. Like, for example, do not murder. That's a, that's a, that's a law. There's um, the 1861 Act. Um, whatever regulation you think of normally as laws, those are your primary rules. And there are secondary rules that underlie your primary rules. So your secondary rules determine how your primary rules can be um, changed or repealed or added onto. And the rule of recognition is this fundamental idea that there are some rules by which laws have to be enacted and they don't comply with those laws, um, they, would not be, they would not amount to laws. So parliamentary sovereignty being a rule of recognition would mean whatever parliament says is law, is law, and whatever parliament says isn't law, isn't law. And that's, that's our working premise. Right. Uh, I think going back to what Malik mentioned, the question that you brought up, uh, you sort of see, well, at least it's my personal belief that you sort of, the parliament has given the courts the ambit to look in, read into legislation and determine parliamentary intention. So essentially what that means is that uh, the courts are able to declare ultra virus, so ex exercise of the executive powers outside of their scope. And uh, similarly, we see that in a lot of cases, like the, the Miller case, and it's a lot of the times you see the court stepping in and sort of curbing the power and uh, curbing the power of the executive and whatnot. And um, they always, you, you sort of see that inherently the fact that the courts are able to do something like that means that the courts have power over some, like over the executive itself. But at the same time, you always, like in, uh, in Obiter, the the judges feel almost obliged to mention the fact that, oh, you know, parliament is still sovereign, we don't have power over, the courts should not be overreaching. Or, But the ability for them to determine what parliamentary intention is in and of itself, to me, means that there is some sort of imbalance going on, or if not an imbalance, so much so as a shift in power towards the courts. So I'm not sure what you guys, what you guys think of this. Right, I think it's clear that um, the interpretive powers of um, legislation by courts give them an, a scope of power. So I think um, judges are, f f I guess, fairly, they, they acknowledge the fact that this exists. So, uh, for example, in the case of Kaiden uh, and Mendoza. Yeah, and mm. Mendoza. So what happened was there was a legislation that seemed to apply only to heterosexual couples, but the courts intervened and reinterpreted it in a manner such that it also applied to homosexual couples. So um, this, is, this, this was a clear example of how the courts have used their interpretive powers. Uh, perhaps the most uh, significant recent example of uh, set inter interpretative 
powers is the case of Privacy International. Uh, would you guys like to discuss a little bit about uh, this uh, landmark case? Uh, maybe Harish or Michael, or else I can step in. So um, the issue was whether there, there, was a, there was a piece of legislation, which is Section 67, Subsection 8 of RIPA 2000, whether it ousts jurisdiction of the High Court to quash judgment of the uh, Investigatory Powers Tribunal, which is supposed to be a tribunal that is set up to investigate um, issues of national security. Um, so the, the legislation in question explicitly stated that um, that they were ousting jurisdiction essentially of um, the High Court and of all courts. But the courts intervened and stated essentially that the statute should not be interpreted as ousting judicial review of statutory tribunals. And they said that the ousting only applied to questions where the law was correctly decided upon and did not necessarily mean that um, when there were errors of law that the courts could not step in. I think it also ties into the idea of the rule of law because courts make the assumption that parliament will not uh, infringe on fundamental uh, common law or human rights unless they explicitly say so. And in this case, uh, the right that was being infringed upon was access to the courts. There are other cases in which uh, this issue also arises. Uh, I believe Unison is uh, one of these uh, cases as well. So perhaps there is a lot of evidence, uh, of judicial evidence for the fact that, as Harish proposed, parliamentary sovereignty is no longer... Uh, as respected as it, as it was in the past. Right, and I think to, this is to keep in context the fact that parliamentary sovereignty is a, at least it's, it, it's some, some academics seem to argue that parliamentary sovereignty is an invention by the courts and therefore judges can take back what they gave to parliament. So um, Brazier, for example, in his book Constitutional Reform argues that judges have the power to um, curb their own invention, which is this which is basically alluding to the fact that parliamentary sovereignty is a creation by judges. And therefore, if the judges gave parliament its sovereignty, they can certainly take it back. And I tend to agree with this view because of the case of Factotim. So um, maybe Malik and Michael would like to jump in on Factotim. Well, uh, Factotim was a case in which uh, legislation was passed by a parliament to restrict the fishing rights of uh, non-British fishermen. Uh, however, this was contrary to EU legislation, which uh, said that there must be equality uh, in regards to such legislation. So Factor Team 1 was essentially uh, an appeal by Spanish fishermen to enter with an injunction to prevent uh, the act of Parliament from taking effect. Uh, however, this was very controversial because, of course, if Parliament is sovereign, then uh, such an injunction should not be possible, or at least this was the uh, orthodox uh, view at that point. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind is the fact that b before Factor Team, the ordinary rule was that if two acts of parliament conflicted, the later rule would apply. So um, in, in the case, there were two conflicting ones. One was the European Communities Act 1972, which gave effect to EU law. And the other was the Merchants and Shippings Act, which uh, was enacted in 1988, if I'm correct which was later. So obviously there was a conflict. And what was interesting about this judgment is that Lord Bridge said that the effect of this was that it disapplied provisions from the 1988 Act, even though it happened after the 1972 Act. Perhaps more explicitly, this is seen in the case of Thorburn, which uh, it was determined that there are certain statutes with our, which are constitutional and thus must be given uh, greater uh, reverence by the courts. Uh, in that case, there were two conflicting statutes. However, despite 
uh, traditional uh, thinking implying that the later statute should be giving preference. The 1972 ECA was uh, was given preference due to the fact that it uh, is constitutional. Right. So I, I just want to ask pose a question to the two of you. So um, if we look at it in terms of if we accept that the courts are there's a there's a there's a power shift moving towards the courts and deciding what Parliament wants and uh, intends to do in terms of its legislation, then would you guys would you guys be more in favor of, say, for example, a more American system in which the courts are explicitly allowed to strike uh, strike down legislations as opposed to having this where it's sort of a gray area and we're not really sure of the the, the powers that the courts have? So um, this is something that actually came up in a tutorial for us. Um, was it last week or a few weeks ago? But basically, it's this idea where of asking whether or not a constitutional court is desirable. So a constitutional law a court like the US is one where judges have the power to strike down legislation as being unconstitutional. And I said it's a bad idea. And I think it's a good thing that it's a bad idea. I, I, I think it's a bad idea. And I think it's a good thing that the UK doesn't have that. Because I said that it would politicize the courts. Because if judges have a strike down power, you as a politician or as a head of a party would have a lot more incentive to politicize the court so that they would rule in your favor. And that's what we see in the US, right? Always elect, um, ju judges being confirmed in the Senate are basically chosen by virtue of their... Um, political uh, leanings. Yeah, of their political leanings. And although there, was, um, there were some restraints with an increasingly politicized um, media and with an increasingly politicized uh, discourse that takes place in the US, what we see is that people are leaning left and right even harder and harder, and that's not going to be a good thing if that happens in the UK. One of the things that we must keep in mind is that the Lord Chancellor in the UK, who's a publicly elected official, is someone who, is, who has quite a fair bit of power in terms of determining how judges are chosen. So he convenes the commission that decides who to recommend, and he has to give effect to that commission's recommendation unless he feels that that recommendation is not suitable. So at this point, a lot of the times, the Lord Chancellor just takes into account the commission's decision and gives effect to that decision accordingly. But I see scope where if the courts had a constitutional power, had a constitutional strike down power, what would happen is that we would see the Lord Chancellor taking a more active role in determining uh, people according to their political leanings. And I don't think that's a good thing for anyone. In order to answer your question, I think we must distinguish from the fact that the United States has a written constitution and the United Kingdom does not. Were judges to have the power to strike down legislation, I believe that there must be a restraint upon that power and that, that that must be explicitly provided for in a constitution uh, because the judges themselves will not be able to amend that constitution. Uh, a, a power as expansive as that of striking down legislation should not be simply given to the judges without any restraints. So I... Uh, that would be my answer to the question you have posed. However, I'd like to talk to both of you a little bit about uh, the fact that judges are not elected. Uh, I mean, Harris has just uh, explored the procedure for uh, uh, selecting these judges. Would you guys argue that since judges are not elected and therefore they're arguably not subject to the whims of voters, that they're better placed to come to decisions about uh, the protection of minorities? Because, of course, they're not subject to the to majoritarian uh, democracy and thus to the whims of these voters. Uh, I think it's important to note here that uh, the selection system that that happens before a judge is 
sort of decided upon is inherently a little bit problematic because of the way the I has I'm sort of hesitant to say that it's not meritocratic, but it's sort of there's like a very large uh gatekeep keeping system going on so like the recommendations that are given from uh, people who are in the system and uh, how that system itself works sort of lends itself to the fact that it might not be as sort of uh, transparent a selection as one might believe so I think it's also important to note that while it might be said that they don't have political leanings but they might it might come it might, there might come a point where you sort of see them being indebted to like certain parties or people in power and that might be a bit of an issue. Right, but I think the alternative is getting them elected or getting them uh, selected by a legislative body, which inherently lends itself to political leanings as well. So I'd, ra- I'd rather a system where political leanings are the result of one's own beliefs as opposed to political leanings arising as a result of the way in which they're selected. So the system naturally selects for a party that's in power at that point in time. So I'd be inclined to say that's completely fine. The fact that judges are not elected not only should be the way, but that the alternative is far worse because it's going to lead to politicization. And that's not ideal because you're going to get rulings that are unpredictable based off of who sits in court as opposed to rulings based off of what the law is. I think it's also important to consider the current context in which we are. Uh, the conservatives are the government, uh, form the government that is in power, and they have uh, expressed dissatisfaction with recent outcomes in the Supreme Court. And they have said that uh, they plan to reform to an extent uh, the way that uh, judges uh, operate and that they want a parliament to be given greater power. Uh, do you think that this uh, vision by part of the conservative party will affect the dynamics of power as if we have explored that arguably parliamentary sovereignty is no longer as uh, widely respected as it once was. Do you think that with the Conservatives now in power, this will change back in favour of parliamentary sovereignty and the parliament? I think it's difficult. Like I feel, I feel like we're bordering on conflating the idea of um, Conservatives and what they stand for and the Conservative as in, you know, like um, beliefs uh, in, in with regards to the rule of law and how that should be run because I'm not really sure if Boris has come out and said like, no yeah yeah this is in the in the um, manifesto so the, the, what, what they're trying to do is shift power back to the UK back to the UK and within the court systems themselves they have expressed the satisfaction and they have mm-hmm. said that they think a reform is in order in order to give more power uh, to parliament they, they have explicitly said that so one of the things they're looking at is proposing a new protocol that permits member states to make reservations about certain aspects of law. So I think one of the ideas you can think about is maybe Hearst. Hearst is a case where prisoners' rights to voting were mm-hmm. severely restricted except in limited circumstances. Mm-hmm. And when the case went to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, it was held that this was contrary to the European Convention of Human Rights. But there was very little legislation that was passed following that. Um, and what we see in the Conservative Manifesto and in this piece that uh, I think Richard Eakins writes, he's a, he's a, a lecturer at Oxford, um, he talks about reversing the Supreme Court judgment and instead point, reversing the Supreme Court judgment and the, and the European Court of Human Rights judgment and instead allowing the UK to take back power and allowing the government and the legislature to reserve matters. So... Um, they're looking at fundamentally changing the constitutional order and, re- and sort of taking power away from the rights of judges. Because judges have power only based off of 
statutes that are enacted or things that people have signed up to. The Supreme Court is only enabled by the Human Rights Act because it incorporates into legislation the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights and of the Convention. So these are one of the ways in which the Conservative Manifesto seems to try and limit the scope of application of judges. I feel like, isn't that inherently problematic? Because the if the courts act as a check on the government itself, then by sort of taking power away from that check, then don't, wouldn't you say that it sort of makes the power, like the power balance swing very drastically in favour of Parliament? Yeah, but I don't think that the Conservatives or lots of people would see that as problematic because ultimately, what should the check and balance be? A bunch of unelected 10 white men in, in the Supreme Court determining exactly what the what right and wrong is. I think that should be the I, I think there should be a greater check, of course. But I can certainly see where the arguments are coming from and why we should have greater democratization. Because it doesn't seem fair that a that a body of people who are so non-representative of the population is able to decide on cases and make political judgments or what seems to be political judgments. Okay. So I don't see that as um problematic i see that's problematic but i can see where the conservatives are looking from it and seeing that's not problematic that's exactly what how it should be right so you mentioned that it's not proportional uh proportionate to uh the people in the uk itself so is that something so if we were to say that instead of say for example 10 white men who are making the decision who are unelected if we change the if we change the process in which they are elected so so the Eastern European courts have more diversity because of their appointment system. So the gatekeeping system to their courts is an exam. So that would make it slightly more meritocratic, and then you would see sort of a greater level of proportionality as compared to the people in the UK. So, for example, if we were to change that system to make it a little bit more meritocratic, would you still be opposed to this idea of having the, having the power that the courts currently have? I... I must confess that I'm not opposed to this, but all I'm saying is that the conservatives can. Right. And I think the point that conservatives are making is that it shouldn't be up to judges at all, but only in very limited circumstances where they're applying the law to intervene in what seems to be political judge making, judge uh, political rulemaking by the judges. So I don't think a change in the system would allay conservatives' fears. Rather, I think um, it would merely point to the same issue like why is an exam determining who makes our laws right well what, what on what basis should that be shouldn't that be the power the powers of the legislature not of judges okay so um i i i understand that isn't your view but since there's the that's the sort of the point that there's you're a line standing going on, on right? there's a exactly. line you're going on i'm just going to try and attempt to poke holes in it um so uh you you mentioned that so basically what you were saying is that the the whole idea of it's not really it's not really the the system that it's more of the fact that the courts can step in whenever they want even if it's outside the the law the ambit of the law right but that that inherently comes in when we don't have a written constitution so there's no there's no clear lines as to where the courts can cannot step in so if in, in a lot of common law is based on precedent so if we don't allow the courts to step in at all and only when the executive of parliament deems it to be under the under the law, re- with regard to the law, then how is that possible that the courts could ever act as a check to the parliament? Maybe the idea is that courts shouldn't be a check, that the fundamental check is the people and democracy in general. So if people don't like those decisions, they're going to they're gonna elect the other party coming in five years from now. And that is the greatest check and balance that one can have. 
and it's also the most powerful. But of course, we must keep in mind the voting system in the UK, which I alluded to earlier. So all of these ideas are interlinked. The fact that 43% of the people voted for a government that has a majority in the House of Commons is problematic. And this is something that we must keep in mind, that the first-past-the-post system isn't necessarily the most effective way of getting representative government. And in fact, leads to a minority of the population actually, support, uh, actually supporting the very legislation that comes out, which is problematic. So I'd say if we get a reform of the voting, uh, the way in which votes are counted, maybe using um, uh, the Scottish system instead, where if your candidate doesn't win, then your vote passes to the next most eligible candidate, um, that would be more desirable. And I think that's when you can say, okay, maybe the courts can take a step back. But the fact that we need a check and balance the fact that there is little check and balance if courts are emasculated of power points to the fact that we need those checks and balances. But the very same argument comes back again, which is that uh, conservatives are going to say that, maybe not all conservatives, but the conservatives in favour of Richard Eakins would say that it doesn't matter. That's democracy, right? Right. So I, I understand where you're coming from, but um, just quick call back to our judicial activism podcast. So we in in that uh, we discussed that the judiciary and the courts are very like they have the ability to very quickly turn um, turn on things that have not been decided yet by the law to change the law in a way that would benefit society as a whole, right? And to be better leaning towards uh, our moralities, right? So I understand that there is. You can say that, that democracy works and it's great and if somebody that ends up being elected turns out to be this horrible, tyrannical person, we can always just vote him out of office or whatever that might be. But we, you also have to acknowledge that there is a period of time in which they will, will be in office before the next election shows up and we will have to deal with that period of time, like Donald Trump, four years. So, you know, like... I, I, a lot of people would say that's not a problem, that's a good thing. Wouldn't they, Abe? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I'm sure Abraham would uh, agree with that, but you can, you can sort of see that idea that I'm coming from, not that you would have to live with this, whatever that person might be, for that, that period of time in before which you could elect somebody else to be in that position right. of power, right? But I guess this comes down to the fact that, ultimately, I think, the courts hold the power in this constitutional order. The fact that they gave rise to parliamentary sovereignty in the first place tells us that they are empowered as a matter of law to also take back the very power. I think the idea of a common law constitutionalism is uh, what underlies the, the entire doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, which is that courts have the power to give effect to doctrines and they have the power to take away those doctrines. So in a situation like um, yours, I, I don't think it's ideal. And I think people like Richard Eakins would think it's ideal. I, I don't agree with him. But the point is that um, if, if, it's a, if, it's a, if it's a creature of the courts, they can certainly be empowered to take it back. And they will do so in that five years. I just wanted to talk to uh, you both a little bit about a balancing of both the power of the legislative and the power of the judiciary. Because uh, there are certain academics that argue that the rule of recognition in the United Kingdom ought to be that of the balance of powers, so separation of powers doctrine, which would mean that both the legislative would have a certain amount of power in the United Kingdom, which would be then balanced by the courts themselves. If we recognize that parliament can enact virtually anything that does not violate the rule of law, then we're imposing a qualified right on parliament, which is then qualified by the courts themselves. So both uh, institutions would then try to compete against each other to uh, obtain powers, but they would be balanced by, uh, by each other, 
which I think would be the ideal vision of uh, the UK uh, democratic system. Right, and that's what we see in Miller, right? Miller number two. So Prime Minister tries to prorogue, tries to say it's an order in council, act of parliament. I mean, it's, a, it's an act in parliament, therefore it shouldn't be counted. The courts rule and they reject the idea that it's an, it's an act in parliament and therefore they can't review it, but rather it's an act imposed on parliament and hence uh, prorogation for an extended period of time was not justified, irrational, therefore witness be review. And so that means that we, we, we basically come to the conclusion that the courts have this balancing ability to counter what uh, parliament and the executive tries to do. And I think that's completely fine. Like, isn't that what separation of powers is based off of anyways? So, so you guys are, oh, at least Harris is saying that you are satisfied with the current model of the United Kingdom? Do you feel that the courts should have more power or less power? Or, as I said, uh, do you feel it's all right? So I think um, the the question that we're on today is two, is twofold, right? One is a should question. And I think the current model works because I think that judges have, in effect, as a matter of law, have power over whether parliament is sovereign or not. The manner and form restrictions imposed by factor team, which is... So for our viewers, manner and form merely means parliament cannot repeal an earlier legislation unless it makes express words to that effect, especially if it's a constitutional legislation. So um, I, th I think the fact that the judges are able to shift slowly into different forms of parliamentary sovereignty already shows us that parliament isn't sovereign. Rather, it's judges that are sovereign and making these uh, laws and these changes in the constitutional order possible. Um, whether or not that should be the case. I think the fact that the judges have given us this sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some, like this veneer of parliamentary sovereignty helps us and helps the public better understand the fact that parliament still is in control while still pointing to the fact that judges retain absolute and ultimate discretion, and, but they're willing to exercise it in limited circumstances. How do you feel, Michael? I think I'm inclined to agree on that point. Because, okay, it's sort of this very delicate balancing act where the parliament trusts judges in the court and the judiciary to um, make the right decision. And the judges understand that they have, there's this element of like judicial deference to parliament and they understand that the idea of parliamentary sovereignty should be respected and it's something that, uh, it's a cornerstone of the UK constitution. So, it makes sense that they would allow that for that to happen. But it, then again, it's a very delicate balance because then if somebody, if one of the members of the judi judiciary decides that actually they don't, they don't see things in that way, then you can sort of see, you can sort of see the situation turn very quickly. So I do believe that I'm inclined to agree with Harisha that it works currently. But when, when and if it doesn't work, it will be very, very drastic and very, very quickly. I think it's fair to say that uh, as things stand, uh, the system works fairly well. However, you rightly brought up that things can backfire. And I guess that would uh, create a constitutional moment for the United Kingdom where it'd have to review its constitution. Perhaps then we would see the United Kingdom shift into a written constitution and, well, structure its constitution in a more solidified manner. Uh, what do you guys think? So um, playing off of that question, I'd like to pose a question to the two of you. And the question is, if a situation that Lord Hope describes arises where the parliament enacts legislation that's so fundamentally contrary to the rule of law, what do you think that, what do you think will be the outcome? Hmm. Okay, uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, uh, well, I, I do think if that happens, the 
popular popular sentiment will likely be with the courts if they rule uh, against such a measure, unless of course we have a situation where, uh, due to populism or due to other factors, the uh, population itself has arisen against a minority group, and in that sense maybe uh, the uh, parliament will will prevail because it will be enacting something very popular, but. If that situation does not arise, then I think uh, the population itself will side with the courts and it will be parliament that will feel uh, the backlash of its actions. Right. I think similar to what you're saying, it's sort of that because, I mean, we also have to understand that uh, ju the judiciary is not the only check on um, parliament. You know, uh, it's also po there's political accountability. They are accountable to the people that they represent and their constituents. So. I think by that logic, it would make a lot of sense for the courts to be emboldened, in a sense, by the people. If they, it was something so fundamentally and morally reprehensible that nobody could be behind it, but Parliament still decided to enact it as law, you would see a sort of influx of support for the courts to strike it down. And the, I, I, I would argue that the courts would be emboldened to do so because of the amount of support they would have. So I don't see a situation in which the courts would be frozen unless the people believed in it as well. Uh, Michael and I have offered our views. What's yeah. your stance? So I, I think I'm inclined to side with uh, Malik here. I, I, actually, both of you have made very valid points. I just wanted to bring in this idea of what Dworkin says, which is that um, the rule of law is the ideal of rule by an accurate public conception of individual rights. It requires that the rules in the book capture and enforce individual rights. And the idea of enforcement is in the best way that um, judges are able to enforce it. Um, I think a if a constitutional moment arises, um, it really depends on what the public conceives as the rule of law and whether judges are upholding it, whether parliaments are upholding it. Um, this is a constraint on um, political power, I think. So although judges hold legal power, I think political power is what would determine whether or not our, our, our legal conception of this entire legal framework would break down and collapse and, and become a new constitutional order, or whether it would remain the same and the judges just become completely powerless. At, at this point, I think there's a lot of popular support for the judges' decisions. And um, I think you see that in universities, you see that with academics who generally lean in favour of governments, except for... Um, those exceptional academics who seem to disagree because they're all able to fit in their conceptions of parliamentary sovereignty into the models of the decisions made by government. Uh, I mean, made by parliament, uh, made by judges, rather. So I think um, it really depends on who the public sides with. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with Malik. Yeah. Uh, I also want to recognize that uh, the United Kingdom's constitution has been fairly stable over the past hundred year, uh, well, hundreds of years. So uh, while we might be in a constitutional moment now due to the fact that uh, there's a lot of nationalist uh, sentiments in uh, Northern Ireland and in Scotland, and thus it seems that these regions might want to become independent. And this might, uh, might give strength to the argument that this is the United Kingdom's constitutional moment. The United Kingdom has been able to weather other storms and has been able to remain fairly intact in the past. So perhaps, uh, what we're doing is simply uh, exaggerating the situation at hand and the United Kingdom will, will, will continue as it is with, of course, some sort of reforms, but not of the, uh, of the measure that we're thinking. Right. I think um, even if uh, Conservatives' manifesto goes ahead and we have a, local, a new Bill of Rights uh, for Human Rights, 
I think the courts would continue to utilize their interpretive powers and um, essentially be able to interpret it in a manner such that it's consistent with what we normally conceive of human rights. So I, I'm not convinced that a constitutional moment that deviates from the new labor settlement, which is this idea of this devolved constitution um, and with um, greater human rights, substantial human rights uh, protections, is going to go away anytime soon. So let's leave things at that. But before, uh, Parliament or the courts, Harish? Who holds the ultimate power in the United Kingdom? Courts. Michael? <laughs> I'm going to have to agree with Harish on that one. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Harish. A couple of notes before we go. If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening, and you'll hear again from us soon. <laughs>